Walawani, welcome. My name's Egan Campbell from Palliative Care Australia in Canberra on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples. Welcome to Thursdays at Three, our regular series of conversations with people living and working at the end of life. Earlier this year, Josephine Lokai graduated as a registered nurse from the University of Canberra. Josephine moved to Australia from Kenya in 2017 with a real fire in her heart and soul following the death of her eldest son, Arnold, a decade ago. Her graduation in April of this year was a real milestone in her life, but as you're about to discover, Josephine has other dreams to achieve. Hello, Josephine. Hello, Ian. Thank you for having me in board this morning to share my story. Really looking forward to talking to you, Josephine. Thank Since you. your graduation in April, you've been working at Canberra's hospice, Clare Holland House. Tell us about your work at Clare Holland House. So at Clare Holland House, I am currently on a transition into uh, specialist palliative care as a new graduate nurse. So we work with a multidisciplinary team in looking after people with life-limiting illness, including cancer, multineuron disease, and other diseases like end-stage kidney failures. We have three categories of people who present in Clare Holland. There are those who are on palliative pathway, they come in for respite care. There are those who come in for pain and symptom management, and there are those who are nearing death, so they are coming for end-of-life care. So we as nurses, we do transition into uh, either from the community or from the hospital. We do a set of assessment to get the baseline of our patients. We admit them and then we let the doctors come and do their part by uh, prescribing medication so that we can take up our part. Mm -hmm. Apart from that, we provide emotional support to our patients and we give them that reassurance while in our care. We use evidence-based practices such as the palliative care standards, the nursing and midwifery board of Australia standards, and other policies and procedure to guide our practice at Clare Holland House. And we also do referrals uh, to allied health. So we have pastoral care team who come in to talk to them, in, uh, support them in their emotional aspect, the physiotherapist, dietitian, social worker, and all other people, even including the administrative office. So we work as a team in Clare Holland House. You're making me tired hearing about all that, that work, Josephine, but such an important service for the Canberra community, not only the, the hospice service, the acute service that you provide, but also the, the outreach, the community palliative care that, that springs from Clare Holland House. And that whole service is going through a bit of a change at the moment, and we, we salute all the people who, who are involved and carrying that, that extra weight at the moment that comes with change. Yes. Josephine, why did you get into palliative care? when you could have done anything in, in nursing, you chose to go in the direction of palliative care. I can't help but think the experience you've had with your eldest son, Arnold, influenced your decision to, to head down the palliative care path. I think the decision to get, to get into palliative care is to keep the memory of my late son, Arnold, who succumbed to cancer-related complications. The challenges that Arnold went through is what made me, inspired me into nursing. So, and getting into nursing, I wasn't really specifically thinking of palliative care as a wide area to work uh, on. My way was going into oncology and hematology. But later on, when I came to understand what palliative care is, it's not all about cancer. It's uh, all about life-limiting illness, including respiratory diseases such as COPD. Then I'm like, I think this is where I want to go because the challenges that I got 
with Arnold is at the end of life, that care. We didn't have quality life. And I thought I would want to work in Claire Holland House and in palliative care, get more understanding on how when someone is end of life, how do you manage them or how do you help them to live a quality life? Let's yeah. talk a bit more about, about Arnold, if, if that's okay, and the experience you had with Arnold around, around his death. Take us back to, to Kenya and your, your life back there. So basically, before Arnold got sick, uh, I used to work in the government office. So I was a marketer by profession for 13 years. And in uh, 2013, the constitution of Kenya was changed and women were allowed to vie for political positions. And I thought I had an agenda for the young women and uh, uh, generally the youth. So I took up the position and joined the slot. So I vied for a member of parliament as a woman representative and I became third. So after the elections, Arnold had symptoms of asthma. He got in and out of school oftenly, and I had to take him to hospital. And I remember they did some blood, they did some tests, and they said, oh, you boy, you don't want to go to school. You're trying to get out of school. And I was supporting the doctor. And my son got upset and said, mom, take me back to school. And in Kenya, we don't stay with our kids, Ian. We keep them in boarding schools the whole time. So we really have very short time with our kids. Mm -hmm. So Arnold will go to school. And at one point, around three weeks, when he went back to school, the doctors called me, uh, the school called me and told me Arnold collapsed in school. And I had to go pick him up. He was ble he was coughing blood, took him to the hospital, and they did a bit of some scans and bloods, and they say he's got low hemoglobin. So before then, we didn't even know what was happening. So he got admitted, and now the journey of uh, his diagnosis began by then. So you went from, I guess, an, an asthma diagnosis to, to cancer. Yes. So I think Arnold, Arnold was deteriorating, but I couldn't understand. Now with my education and training and working in Claire Holland, I've learned something called about the trajectory of disease. You, you go to hospital, you come back, you start presenting back to hospital, you on, off, on, off. Something is cooking up or going on in your body. So if they don't catch it up very quickly, it will end up to that uh, where you're going to have uh, the illness is going to be overwhelming to your body. Mm -hmm. So we really, I really missed a lot of things in between with the health of Arnold, which I didn't pick it up. I didn't know really much about asthma. So I just went to the shop, bought a puffer and gave it to, uh, to Arnold without education. The kid doesn't know. Arnold doesn't even know what a puffer is. Yes. And he would go to school. And because Arnold was a very quiet boy, He's very quiet. He doesn't complain. He doesn't talk. And if you quarrel him, he will not tell you anything. So he decided to keep to himself. And that's how he suffered slowly. And by that time when he got admitted, he, he, had, he told the doctor, I've got pain in between my legs. So they did a scan and they found out he's got a swollen liver and the lymph nodes were all over in the head, in the mm -hmm. neck, and it had gone to the liver as well. The poor fellow. What what happens next? What sort of treatment options did you did you go through? So Ian, I was really like I didn't even have education. What cancer? I used to hear about cancer just like HIV, but I've never met with people with cancer. Mm -hmm. And when the scan started, they took a biopsy for the lymph node to test it. So it took a bit of like a whole month for them to get a result. So we were in the hospital, and I used to go to Google just to check what cancer is, what is this. Mm -hmm. It was giving me a lot of anxiety because nobody was talking to me. Ian, there was no education, there's no counselling, what to expect. So I was relying on Google, and Google was. Giving giving me like a lot of scary news. And at that point, I started looking for a passport. One of my friends told me, can you take Arnold to India? 
India is a bit, uh, it's a bit quicker and they have got uh, expertise in machines. So when I was preparing for the passport, I was doing these things alone and it was really hard for me. So I was leaving my kid going around to apply for the passport. I didn't have enough money again because I had a lot of hospital bills to pay. And after a month, the report came that Arnold has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then after that one month, again, the whole month he was being transfused blood, more than 30 piles of blood because he had really low hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. And when we were thinking of going to India, I sold a piece of my land thinking that I'll go. He wasn't able to fly and the airline could not allow him because of his state. He, he had really deteriorated. So we decided one of my friends gave me a phone number of a specialist who is a cancer doctor. And he sent me to uh, that doctor to talk to him about his care. So we went to that doctor and I think things got worse with that doctor as well. So things were not well. There was no communication. We will only be called when it's time for chemotherapy. When Arnold is having complications, he will not pick my call. Yeah. I can see how that experience would inspire <laughs> your own your own journey to want to provide better health care to Yes. experience that you and Arnold have had. How old was Arnold when all this is happening? And you've got other kids uh, as well to, to look after. So Arnold was 16 years old when he passed away. It took him uh, nine months in the hospital and then the disease, uh, he succumbed to cancer-related complications. So I've got two more kids, Aaron. Aaron is now 20 years old and Ashley 16 years old. Yeah. And what's happening for you as their their mum at this time as you say you you're trying to do so much you're trying to look after three kids you're selling land you're thinking about going to india you're trying to get the best care for your boy and for your family what sort of impact does that have on on you josephine as a as a human as his mum uh, I think I went into a very bad depression. I wasn't thinking about my kids anymore in the house. They were living with my relatives because I never went home. So my home was in the hospital. Wow. So my head was in Arnold's life, looking at him. He cannot walk anymore. I developed depression. I had lots of ulcers in my mouth because I was not eating. And the doctors also put me in medication as well in the hospital. Yeah. And they thought... I might even die before him because it was really bad. I started getting confused and uh, things were not working well. I really got out of space with myself. And my mm -hmm. kids would come, like they would be brought to the hospital to see their brother and I would see them. I would just start crying because I didn't know what to do. And being a single mother, it was really hard for me at that point. What impact did the, the lack of communication have for you. You've you've touched on that a number of times. The fact that you've had you had to go to Google to find stuff out. That there was really poor communication from the the health professionals you were working with mm -hmm. that that you were hoping were doing the job for your son. What yeah. impact did that poor communication have on your mental health? As I said before, Ian. When we talk about trajectory of diseases, the way Australia do it, you know, the patient is taken through the journey of their disease. You get to know where you are and where you are heading to. So at that point when, where you are told your illness, like the possibility of cure is not there, they try to reduce some things like medications and which reduces the cost of treatment as well. So you see like my son here, nobody told me where we are going. We had to spend at some point, I was given opioid with a hospice care in a bottle. I don't know what uh, morphine, hydromorphine is. 
I had to go. So anytime my son is in pain, I'll just be giving morphine, morphine, 10 meals, five meals. I don't know what to do. So he, he went into a coma. He had to stay in ICU for 17 days. I had to pay a lot of money. And after ICU, he didn't pick it up again. But the doctors were not telling me anything. And then the platelets went zero. And my son was bleeding like for a whole month. He was just bleeding from everywhere. And you can imagine if they would have told me earlier, we would have thought of going the palliative way. We mm. control the symptoms and the pain and we just make him rest in peace. Mm. Yeah. In in Australia, we need to, I guess, improve our awareness and our acceptance of death and dying. It's a real taboo in, in Australian culture and Australian society. Are Kenyans any better at, at, at dealing with death and, and dying? What's the Kenyan culture when it comes <laughs> to end of life? Oh, God. Ian, let me tell you. Once you have, let's say, I'll talk about cancer, not leave alone other terminal illness. So once you have cancer in Kenya, people, first of all, associate you as it's either you have a, you did something evil to get, a, to get that disease. Second thing, they will think maybe you are bewitched or maybe, you know, like you've gone to the sorcerers or something has happened to you. So people will try to keep away from you because they know there is something wrong with you. So you see, in Australia, it's better. People know illness, there's a, uh, there's, there are terminal illness. This is a chronic disease where mm -hmm. at some point I might not be able to get treatment. Vis-a-vis -vis Kenya, where people think otherwise. So you see, you're better off. You're getting there. So uh, that's why I need to go back and spearhead that education and training and try to get people on board. <laughs> Look out, Kenya, Josephine is on the way. <laughs> I, I imagine that only compounded your mental health issues as, as, as well. There's that lack of communication from the health system, but yeah. then you've got all these, um, I guess, societal um, taboos and, and pressures. If, if, if cancer is seen as being something that is inflicted on people from the, the spiritual world, that must have yeah. just compounded your isolation. It is, yeah. So, like, Ian, when I got, I want to remember this, like, when my son got cancer, I think I lost a lot of friends and even family members. It reached a point I was alone in the hospital. I only have one friend who who came to Australia who used to call me and just getting in touch to know how, how I was doing. And the only time I saw people is during the burial. And I would remember one story, Ian, when my son died, like, we buried him today, one of my neighbors who was sick in the hospital died. And I heard someone saying with a preacher, he said, oh, that boy died. He's the one now taking the lives of people in the neighborhood, you know, just because he died of cancer, yeah. it is a, it is a, it's, a, it's a spirit. He brought the spirit of death in this community. So you can imagine the stigma around cancer, even with the people who know God, the people whom you think they are mature enough even to help the community understand about cancer. Yeah, it's 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 quite tasking even in my brain, like to think about it. But I think it's just ignorance. That's what I would say. <laughs> yeah. How do you move beyond that, Josephine, to be the the strong woman you are today? How did you get past that? Arnold dies. There's all that grief and bereavement that that comes with that as his mum. But there's also yeah. all that that other stigma that you're dealing with with too. How do you get healthy again? How do you get well again? 
So what I did, uh, Ian, because of the burden I saw with my son in the hospital, people started calling me like, I used to help a lot of neighbors at home and people who had cancer because they knew I had links with some doctors. They called me and said, oh, I've been diagnosed with cancer. Where do I go? And I told them, what do you want me to do? I don't have anything. But again, I can't sleep at night. I went back, some of them, around four or five, I took them to the hospital. Two of them survived and three of them succumbed to the cancer-related complications. I would walk into the government offices. So I would take this patient to one of the doctors. There's one doctor called Dr. Elias Mayne. So he's got an on, he's an oncologist. I will take the patient to his clinic and I will give him instruction. Start treating this person. I don't have money, but I will pay. Put the bill in me. So I'll go get the government performer to fundraise in the public. I will walk in the buses. I will walk in the markets. People will give me five dollar, ten dollar, and that's how I raised their bill. And then I started writing letters to companies such as uh, Safaricom is a mobile mobile company. So I write to them, I've got sick patients and I need support from your foundation. And they chipped in and helped these people. So that's uh, the inspiration of now continuing to do what I was doing. People started coming to me and I started talking to them. But again, I saw it was a bad and I couldn't make it. How long, how, how far am I going to uh, pay this this bill for how long I wouldn't be able to make it. So I registered the Cancer Foundation. I named after my son, Arnold Cancer Foundation. Now I was looking for means of getting fundraising and getting ways to see how I can help people if I get funding. Yeah. So you dived into life as a way of making yourself well again, it sounds yeah. like. You're engaging with your community. You're you're advocating for people. You dived into life in order to, to get yourself healthy and well again. Yeah. How did you come to be in Australia? Wow. In Australia, <laughs> I've got a friend of mine whom we live together. We stayed, lived together in Kenya before uh, she relocated in Australia. She's called Salindiwa. She's a registered nurse and she's relocated in uh, West, uh, uh, Southern Australia. So Sally, she kept on checking on me and supporting me even while uh, she was a student. And she saw the passion that I had with people who are sick. Um, and she asked me, would you like to do nursing? And then I told her, if I get that opportunity, that's what I want to do. So she inspired me and we began applications uh, to get me into Australia. And that's how I relocated to Australia. Wow. Um, yes. The rest of your family, uh, are some of, the, some of your families here in Australia with you? Yeah, I'm here with my son, Aaron and Ashley and my sister, two sisters and brother are in Kenya and my grandmother is also in Kenya. Unfortunately, I lost my parents, I think a decade ago, but we are fine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What a what a feeling it must have been to graduate as a as a registered nurse, given the story that you've just outlined, and 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 I imagine really special to have your your family with you here in Australia to see you graduate as a registered nurse. Oh, Ian, you know, a few weeks to graduation. I've got few friends around here, including that friend of mine and their family and my kids here. I did apply for a visa for my brother and my aunt, but unfortunately, they didn't get the visa on time, which is okay. But again, I didn't sleep the whole night because I was really imagining me walking in the podium and having the crown on me and looking at my age. And, you know, I'm 44 years. And, you know, people said when I came to Australia, she's going to look for greener pastures. There is no education. People just go there to look for greener pastures. But again, now I'm becoming the light of the world, you know. So out of my experience of the pain that I've gone through, I can use that pain to be a light uh, to others so that they can 
take up their pieces and do something for their communities to make the world a better place to live. Wow, yeah. so great to have you here, as you say, being that, that light for the world. As you go about your work at Clare Holland House, do you talk about Arnold or how does Arnold inspire your work at Clare Holland House? Uh, foremost, I, would, I also want to appreciate the University of Canberra. You know, they featured my story uh, during my graduation and people at work call me a celebrity. So even after that, <laughs> so even after this interview, they will say, wow, you are a celebrity. So out of that, so many people read my story. They know about me. Even the patients themselves, they are those who know about my story. And every day I work, I relate with Arnold. And I look at people while I look at them. Look at what Arnold went through. I didn't, I didn't know anything about pressure area care. I didn't know anything about pain and symptom management. I didn't know about simple things like oral care, communication, involving patient in their care. You know, all these things is in one basket. So as a nurse, I make sure I provide this quality care to this person so that they don't have the same experience that Arnold had. And I really enjoy doing that, Ian. You touched on it before. You're keen to improve things in, in Kenya. What what next for you? Tell us about that vision you have for improving palliative care, improving health care in Kenya. Now, I, I have a bigger dream, Ian. First, this is what I have. I was sharing with one of my friends yesterday. So I'm, I'm on this palliative uh, transition program for one year. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking after this, I want to specialize as a palliative care medical doctor. So wow. I think I'll be, yeah, I'll be going further for my studies. Mm-hmm. I'm still looking around to see where I could get the scholarship because if I'm going to Kenya to run a palliative care center, then I need more knowledge about this field before I go into set up some, something tangible for the community. So I'm thinking I want to use that opportunity because we have we have good quality education in Australia. We've got the support over here uh, so that three years I can take up that challenge to do the palliative care studies. And then I'll be traveling home this year in Kenya. I'm going to look for a piece of land. And then out of that, I want to register maybe Annual Cancer Foundation here in Australia and then think of ways to get support and start to build that cancer center. So in the next five years or so, maybe we will be running uh, the cancer, the palliative care center in Kenya. So exciting. Is there something that, <laughs> that people can do to support you now, to, to help this vision now, Josephine? Yeah, uh, yeah. like currently I want to purchase the land, but I don't have the cash, you know. I'm just going home maybe to take a loan or something like that because I really don't have, I've just finished my studies as an international student, Mm -hmm. so I don't have like tangible cash to buy the land. So I'll be looking like for $50,000, I just want to go, go and get a piece of land. And then out of that, the other things will fall in place because I'll need to start getting machines in place, equipments to manage this uh, hospital as well, and getting people on board to support me. So that's what I'm looking, uh, that's, what, that's the plan that I have at the moment, just to have the land in place. And then I'll fix up my education. Then after five years, I think so, things will be rolling out. We're right behind you, Josephine. Thank Tell you. me about Kenya. It, it's it's a mysterious country for many Australians, not a country that many Australians know well. What do you love about Kenya? What do you miss about Kenya? 
I think Ian, you are missing it out because Kenya has been rated. I think 2021. It's the most. Uh, it's 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 among it's it's the best country for tourist destinations. So it's unfortunate that you've not been there because it's been it's been the it's been the best for the last seven years. That is the research that we are having, and you've not been there. So look at Kenya. We've got wild animals, including we we have more than 50 parks and reserves. That's why tourists go there. We also grow things like coffee and we export them and we get more than 4.5 billion per year out of the export. We have flowers. We also have our tradition. It's very unique. We've got our traditions, which is very unique. And in Kenya, remember, we are the fastest people in the athletics. So we run like Kipchoge, Kipchoge Keino. Yeah. So we are in the top of the list of the world. So make sure you pay a visit to Kenya and hopefully when we open Cancer Foundation, you will be there. <laughs> I, would, I would love to be there. Kenya is certainly on my bucket list. And whenever I see a Kenyan runner at the Olympic Games, uh, I'm, I'm always cheering, and more so now, Josephine, that you and I have <laughs> Oh, yeah, exactly. And the climate as well. It's very cold here in Canberra. In in Kenya, our lowest is around 18 or 19 degrees. So Kenya is a bit warmer. <laughs> yeah. Josephine, you're such an inspiration, such a powerful story. We we wish you well. Please stay in touch and let us know how we can support you as your grand plans grow. We wish you well. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for having me. Josephine Lokaya, registered nurse at Claire Holland House in Canberra. Thank you for tuning in to Thursdays at 3, whether that's via PCA socials or Spotify and engaging with matters of life and death. You'll find advice, tools and support at the Palliative Care Australia website where you can also make a donation to support our work. See you next Thursday. Thank you.